0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lowdown. Today I am delighted to be joined by the author of 12 Yards and Edge, Ben Littleton, to discuss all things football, talent development and high performance. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Connor. Ben, it's been close to a year since we last spoke and with so much of what you do as an author, as a writer, going travelling, meeting people, having these social interactions, how's that routine been affected over the past year?
1: Well, it's definitely been different. And I think what what we have learned through this difficult period is that everyone is on a different page at different times. So while one um, individual might be totally fine with their situation in lockdown and the health of their loved ones, someone else might be going through something totally different and totally difficult. So I think we need to be aware of that And that slows things down really in terms of working together, uh, arranging things, working on long-term projects together. So I think there's a, a real sense that everyone needs to be on the same page to make things happen. And so that has allowed me to show more patience and awareness and consideration of everyone else's position. And I think it's also allowed us to slightly reframe how we work, because I always worked from home because I was a writer, but now everyone is working from home and we need a slightly different language around it. And this concept of even having a meeting feels very um, transactional. And so one person always wants something from it and it's not always clear what that might be. And so I feel that to have occasional check-ins where there is no agenda, is a very useful way of keeping in touch with people, um, having virtual coffees or whatever that whatever they, they might be, um, some, kind, some kind of conversation where you're not just conversing with the other person because otherwise you're just looking at the, the four walls of your screen and your world is getting narrower and narrower and it already is narrower anyway. So. There needs to be a bit more novelty in, in how we interact with people. And I think a bit more curiosity in the things we can talk about and do. And I think it has been a really challenging time. And I'm curious to see what happens when the situation eases and there are more freedoms given to us all because I'm not sure everyone will be totally comfortable with getting back to how it was before because a year is a long time to be in a certain situation. So I think again, we're gonna to need to show some patience and consideration for other people because once again not everyone is going to be on the same page of course now i'm curious to delve maybe just
0: a little bit more into that ben do you believe in your dealings on a day-to-day basis with football clubs and organizations that they echo a similar sentiment
1: to what you've just elaborated on who knows um everything depends on the individual relationships and all all work and all um talent development and all identification everything that i'm trying to work in in terms of leadership and creativity and cohesion depends on building relationships having high levels of trust in people and in organizations and those things take time and everyone has a different view of that so there might be one person in a club who's ready to go and wants to get out there and start visiting clubs again and seeing what's out there and there might be someone else who lost a loved one and is much more cautious and i think we have to respect both both views because both people have, have a right to those views
0: of course and then if we're going to go back right to the start then what brought you into this real so to speak of writing about football and using it as a
1: lens perhaps a wider lens to look at self-improvement and education. So I started off really with an interest in the psychology of performance as um, a football writer for a long time. And being English, I was very frustrated that every time England got to a penalty shootout in a major tournament and lost it, the coach would say, oh, we're just unlucky, penalties are a lottery. So I spent two years investigating whether that was actually true or not um and that culminated in the publication of my book 12 yards the art and psychology of the perfect penalty and i realized that it it was not true penalties are not a lottery and uh there is some luck involved but you can minimize the, the relevance of that luck and you can do things that help improve your chances of winning in a penalty shootout and that got me really interested in the psychology of performance because as well as um, technique being important in penalties, the the key thing is really psychology, mentality, mindset. And so I went deeper into that while I was exploring the art of penalties. And then that led me to Edge, my second book, which is um, called Edge Leadership Secrets from from Football's Top Thinkers. And I extended the, the reach of the psychology of performance and looked into, Um, how leaders build resilience, creativity, cohesion, adaptability and decision making in their players, really around culture. Um, And that is one way that individuals and teams develop an edge. So that those those are the two things. The umbrella is psychology of performance and using football as a tool for education and self-improvement, because I think the lessons that come out of 12 yards and edge are not just football related lessons. So the way football managers communicate to their team, communicate to their players can be used in any industry at all. And in fact, I took one lesson from uh, one coach. I spoke to Didier Deschamps um, who was, who wasn't still his France coach before he won the world cup. He said to me, one thing I do is I never make promises to my players because if you do that, you'll only disappoint them, and then you'll lose some trust. And as a parent of two children, I thought, well, let's see if that can work in my personal life. And I took it into my personal, life. I made fewer promises. It's very difficult not to make any, but I made fewer. And it was actually really helpful. So that's that's the lessons from a football coach going into my personal life, but obviously more relevant in terms of you know developing cohesion and building cultures and resilience and these kind of things are in professional lives and all professional lives, not just those of a football coach. And so I felt that by speaking to interesting people in these fields um, at Chelsea, at Liverpool, at Athletic Bilbao, um, uh, you could get an insight into leadership and management and talent performance and development and improvement that can help us all across the board. And I think
0: the most unique thing which I picked up on on from Edge Ben was that it's fairly relevant and that I believe it will stand the test of time. That even though it was published in 2016, 2017, albeit it's probably more relevant now as it was back then. And we've seen, of course, with the data revolution, there's a large obsession nowadays with numbers and data. You know, we can only measure what we can manage And vice versa. Often we see a neglect of these soft skills. How do coaches and you yourself as a consultant go into these sporting backgrounds now and emphasize how important exactly these soft skills are?
1: Well, I think there is an awareness in some places that are progressive that they are important. I think people know that athletes probably can't run any faster or kick the ball any harder. So the next frontier of talent development is what is above our shoulder. So what is in our mind? And the data and analytics revolution has been really interesting in this field because I think it has helped clubs change how they approach recruitment. And I think there is an important place for it, but I also think there's room for other Um, areas and, and methods of talent development as well. But I think what we're going to be seeing is ways of also measuring psychology in the future. And I think that's what really interesting clubs and individual practitioners are working on at the moment. How can we actually measure anticipation and how can we actually measure resilience and cognitive flexibility and all these factors that are actually very important in performance and player development, but can they be measured and how are we gonna do that? And I think that is the next stage of the data revolution, which at the moment is XG and all this this other stuff that um, you spoke to very interestingly with Dan Altman about, um, but there is a next level to that, which is, we're going to start measuring psychology. And that's something that really excites me.
0: It's quite fascinating to see who's going to pick up the can, so to speak, and, car- or the baton, and carry it from there. Because one of the most interesting case studies was at the beginning of the book, Under a Cohesion with Bill Bilbao. And in comparison, in contrast, I'm a huge Chelsea fan. Now, what I see with Bill Bilbao from a distance is that they have a clear sense of identity one which perhaps Chelsea do not have. And we've seen how Frank Lampard struggled in his attempts to gel off last summer's signings. Now, another case study which you've done inside the book was on Thomas Tuchel, what has he done which Lampard hadn't, which seemingly has got the best out of this Chelsea squad?
1: Well? Oh, that's such a good question, Connor. Um, I, I would just preface my answer by saying there, are, there is more than one way to win, And so not every team can be like Athletic Club de Bilbao who only pick players from their local region, only Basque players. And that is a huge part of why they're so successful. Um, Chelsea have also been really successful uh, in the Abramovich era, doing things their way, which is changing the coach all the time. So there are different ways of doing it. And I think one of the most interesting conversations I had for Edge was spending time with Thomas Tuchel and... I've been watching very closely what he's been doing with Chelsea and it is really interesting. And one of the first things he did when he came to the club was to almost apologise for not being Frank Lampard and to say very openly, I have great respect for what he did as a player. Um, What what a superb ambassador and servant for the club he was and what a club legend. And I'm come, come here to, you know, continue his work and do the best I can, but please don't compare me to him because I'm not him. And I think that was a very important line in the sand that that he drew because whatever the results were on the pitch, Lampard had this playing career behind him that was grace in the bank, so to speak. So he could have actually lasted a lot longer because he was their all-time leading scorer. So you get someone coming in first time coaching in, in England, so not, probably that well known to many of the fans. And in his first game, he picks Callum hudson odoi as a wing back. And suddenly everyone goes, wow, what what is he doing there? I never saw that coming. And that I think was very important because that was really a message to everyone, to the players, to the internal staff, and to the fans, that he is prepared to do anything to find ways to make this team win. And they might be surprising and they might be interesting and they might not work because I don't think Hudson-Odoi has played wing back since, but he tried it and it sent, I think a very powerful message that every player will get an opportunity and maybe get an opportunity in a way that they weren't expecting it. And whatever it takes to try and find the best solution to get results is what he will try and do. And since then, I think he's spoken openly about players openly about his tactical systems. I think we've seen Chelsea's social media team be do some really interesting tactical, provide some interesting tactical insight on how they beat Atletico Madrid in the champions league, which would never have happened um, under previous coaches. I feel like there's a transparency and openness and honesty um, to to what he's trying to do. I feel that he's bringing a bit of fun back into the club and the team and the players. And while not everyone can be happy because they're not all playing, they're getting great results um, and they're doing things really interestingly. And one of the, interesting subjects that we spoke about uh thomas tuchel and i when we met was how how you keep training fun and how you keep player development fun and he's a big fan of this thing called differential learning which he um was told about by a a professor at Mainz university when he was coaching his first club in Mainz. and the up the, the the short version of it is basically if you make training harder than matches when players come to matches, it, it, it becomes easier, right? So he would get his uh, Mainz players and Dortmund players, defenders to mark opponents at corners while they were holding tennis balls in their hand. So they weren't able to grab shirts or really hold their opponents. And so when you get to a game and you haven't got a tennis ball in your hand, it's, it's a lot easier. And he'd divide the pitch in certain ways, make it a diamond rather than a square. So they could only run in certain ways. So when you've got the whole pitch, it becomes different. And and the whole idea of that was um, to make the training harder than than the match itself. So when the match comes, it becomes, it feels easier. And that's like training for an exam. If you are revising for an exam and you are setting yourself the hardest questions or being given the hardest questions you could possibly get in your revision, and then it comes to the exam, going to think oh you know what it's not so bad because i can i can do these ones um and i think we're seeing quite a lot of that in in how chelsea are playing at the moment he's giving loads of different players opportunities um and i think it's i think it's probably quite a fun time to be to be a chelsea fan i mean one of the things that really stuck with me was how he measured success and when we spoke he was at dortmund and they were usually finishing second in the bundesliga and maybe win it, and he won, he won the German Cup, so maybe having a good cup run. And he was getting a bit of grief from the, from the local press because it wasn't seen as good enough because he was coming second to Bayern, whose budget I think every year was over a hundred million euros more. And he said, so what, you know, what is success? How can I be successful at Dortmund if the only measure of success is winning the league? Because I can't really win the league because Bayern have got hundred million euros more. So coming second is the best you can probably do. And then winning the odd trophy. And so there are other ways to measure success. And we kind of sat around and thought about what ways they might be. And they're often intangible. So it would be the feeling that fans would get going into the stadium when they could go, because this is when we spoke, or the pride they get from playing a certain way and seeing your team. Um, win a certain way not just um, closing out 1-0 wins all the time um, which is actually ironically what he's been doing since (laughs) since he called Chelsea but you know in those days he was a romantic and he was an an aesthetic fan of football and wanted to um, find the best result always find the best result but also in a fun way and so he would often play around with players positions and Play two defenders and six midfielders, or whatever whatever he would do. He didn't really believe in formations; more about spaces um, and trying to find spaces in opposition areas to to exploit. Um, But that's another thing. You know, we spoke at the beginning about um, novelty and the same old, the same old, and how we can work in, in new and different ways. And he's always looking for new ways to keep things interesting but also as a lesson that transcends football and can move into our our own professional lives is how we measure success is is really interesting. And I think in football too often we measure success just by results, we're very um, result and outcome focused rather than performance focused. Um, Are we seeing an improvement in performance? Is that better than, than the result? Because there is a lot of random elements of luck that goes into the actual result Uh, seeing improvements in performance steadily and gradually is is much more important and I think as a youth team coach and if there are any youth coaches um, out listening as well this is something that's a constant debate that I have with clubs in every country is what is more important at youth football is it results or is it performance and talent development and it has to be the development of the players Mm -hmm. and if they're losing 5-4 but getting better that is preferable to them winning 1-0 and not getting better so there has to be this idea that there's they're always improving and when it comes to writing a book i have the same questions what may what is a measure of success for writing a book is it writing a book that some people like is it writing a book that no one likes but is really successful it can vary on whatever um idea you have in your mind when you when you when you start the process but i think to think about what your measures of success are because again not every club can win the league only one club can win the league and maybe three or four start with that dream so a a lot of our ideas of disappointment expectation and that taps into our motivation as well um, relies on setting realistic and clear goals which are our points of success along the way
0: I think it's interesting how all of those ideas kind of merge, so to speak, when you speak about high performance, having some cornerstone foundations, um, such as with Tuchel, Then you touch upon, having process at all times above the outcome, having non-negotiables such as Tuchel in terms of transparency. For me as a fan, one of the most important things he did at the start when he went into the football club was reintegrating the captain, César as Poliquet or straight into the first team picture. And when he was asked about it, he was nearly just nonplussed looking at the reporter as if it was a stupid question. He was saying, of course, César is the captain. He has to play in most games. He has to play this game. And then one other figure who you interviewed Ben was Didier Deschamps, who's also fairly transparent. And he's an interesting case study for me. He spent nearly a decade now in charge of the French men's national team. He's a national team manager. He's not a club manager. He sees his squad, albeit, a handful of times a year. However, he's quite adamant in terms of the characters and values he wants in a setup. Now, we've seen in the past high-profile players such as Aymeric Laporta and Karim Benzema miss out on making his French squads. How does the Deschamps approach differ to that of Tuchel? or are there similarities there?
1: There are definite similarities. There, there, are, there are similarities. Um, I think in, in in both respects, they're interested in developing the individual as well as the athlete. So the, the person as well as the player. And Deshaup is constantly looking for new ways of engaging his players. Um, he watched a documentary about a South African explorer, polar explorer, called Mike Horn, And he was gonna make the players watch it, watch it with the players at some point because it took them out of their football bubble and he found it really interesting. And They're just little examples of ways that um, you can engage players. But the two things that they have in common is one, this idea of communication being key to everything. And I told the story about Deschamps and the promises Earlier, and I, I feel that Tuchel would agree with that as well. This sense that if you are going to communicate, don't muck around with what you say, and, and you know. And, and, I, and I think he's been straight with Benzema from the start, which is ironic because they've been so successful without the greatest number nine that they that they can call upon over the last eight years. You know, he's not stopped scoring for Real Madrid in that period, but there was just no room for him, and that is putting the team forward because he feels that anything that disrupts the cohesion of the team is not worth it so you can have the most talented individual possible but if it disrupts the cohesion of the team it's, it's not worth it and that's really one of the reasons why I wrote Edge is because we, we focus so much but especially in 12 yards I was focusing on the individual psychology and the individual performance and Edge really looks at the collective and the group and this idea of cohesion and the importance of um, often retaining talent rather than bringing in new talent. So you can develop your own talent. And, and that's often a much easier way of building a successful team than buying a new. And I'm always nervous of fans who say at the end of the summer transfer window, we won the transfer window because we signed the most new players. Because if you have six new players in your squad, um, that's six new relationships to build with a whole load of other new people. And it becomes very complicated. And these relationships take, take a while. And while Spurs didn't sign anyone for three transfer windows in a row, they retained their talent. And during that period, of the, the, the late run of the Pochettino era, these players had known each other for so long and knew exactly what they were going to do. So there was a kind of existing relationship that, that really helped them despite having no, no new blood. The other thing that s- struck me about Deschamps is a word that probably comes up in all your conversations uh, and, and is a buzzword in leadership at the moment, and that's authenticity. So he, he is straight down the line and he is totally himself and one of the things that, that struck me when I met him was how bad his teeth were. And they're exactly, as, they're exactly the same as they were when he was Chelsea captain, when he was a player, and uh, when he played for Marseille, when he played for Nantes. And he's become one of the most successful individual figures in global football, having won the World Cup as a player and as a coach. And only three people in the world have ever done that. And he just can't be bothered to fix his teeth. He doesn't care he's just not interested and that for me is a very external and quite shallow view from my side but you know it's it's an external example of someone who is authentic and doesn't really care what people think about him and is just being true to himself and it seems a very small little thing but I noticed it and it struck me and he spoke very openly about the authenticity that he has from his career and when he was a player and this was a guy who was a born leader so um, he was captaining Nantes at 19 when there were 34 year olds in the side and when he was 12 he was captaining the under 16s and we had a very interesting conversation about whether leaders are born or made and I think in his case he was definitely born a leader I mean I think they can be developed and Nurtured with the right mentor and with, with the right group around them, but Deschamps you know is a, is a, is a natural-born leader, and so to be around him as a player I think would be would be incredibly inspiring and I know France has developed some fantastic talent over the years, but it's no surprise to me that they are now matching that talent with winning, winning titles and winning tournaments because they have someone in charge who totally understands how to make it all work
0: of course and then in terms of mentioning
1: talent, Ben, you
0: interview Ralph Ragnick, Alex Giltorp, and R. A Valdan on the book, and they all have different interpretations of the same word. However, I'm more curious to delve into Ragnick's definition, which is inherited talent plus
1: learned skills multiplied by mentality. What does that look like? Ha, that's such a good question. I mean, Ragnick is, is so interesting in this, in this whole conversation because, you know, When you look at the players that have come through the Red Bull system and the coaches, it's just astonishing really. And and he's built it up and it really surprises me that he is not in employment at the moment because I would look at that Red Bull model and if I was a, a club owner wanting to build a legacy beyond the short term, I would bring him in because I think that is a very replicable model that most people, I mean, Red Bull itself wants a team that represents its brand. So from that point of view, they only pick young players. They've got a very specific way that all the Red Bull teams want to play. But you, you can change, you can tweak that in some way. But who doesn't want a team of young players that are hungry, that play attacking vertical football, that score loads of goals, that, you know, five years ago were were knocking on the door, but now established in European competitions and, you know, at the top of, at the top of the Bundesliga every season and have a pathway of players and coaches. It's clear that there's, you know, Nagelsmann is at Leipzig at the moment. At some point he'll leave and they know who the next guy is going to be. And, Jesse March is at Salzburg at the moment, and at some point he's leaving. They'll know who the next guy is going to be. So there's this constant, very clear pathway and identity to the whole um, to the whole team, to the whole group of teams. And this idea of um, Ranick forming it as a um, mathematical equation is something that I really I really liked. And if you actually do some run some numbers on it and look at his um equation and say right i'm going to take a couple of players here and see see what happens with the um with the numbers okay so let's take a couple of let's take a couple of players here okay so i'll pick you pick one player and i'll pick one player okay so i'll pick mario balotelli um and let's say his inherited talent is out of 10 uh what do you reckon eight pretty good yeah, I mean, yeah. he, mm. okay so let's say he's eight plus learned skills so you know he's been through a lot of coaches with mixed success let's say learn skills five or six right nearly put higher seven or eight perhaps okay. all right, all right or let's or say something. eight well, okay let's say seven let's say eight so that's 16 8 plus 8 16 times mentality all right so time, so now that is the big one so you are, we're on eight plus eight, so we're on 16 times mentality. So out of 10, where would you put his mentality? Four or five. Okay, let's say four. So uh, 16 times four is 64, okay? So that is his talent, okay, 64. Right, now let's do, let's do Holland or Yusuf Polson. you choose.
0: Thank the merit of this conversation, Yusuf Polson.
1: Okay, okay. So Yusuf Polson inherited talent, Five or six? Six? Six. six. Okay, let's say six. Learn skills? Six? Six again, yes, six or seven. Okay, Okay, let's say six. So he's on 12 so far. Remember Balotelli was on 16. Right, times mentality. Mentality?
0: Eight or nine. Eight Eight or nine.
1: nine. All right, let's say say eight, because we're going on the low side. So uh, 12 times eight is what? 94. Is that right? Should not us. 96. 96. All right. So you've got Paulson on 96 and you've got Balatelli uh, Balotelli on 64.
0: Hmm.
1: But in terms of the ability they have, Balotelli, well, the, the inherited talent and the learned skills, Balotelli rates higher. But once you multiply it by the mentality, Paulson is way, way you know, is the player you'd rather have in your squad. And that is how Ranick measures measures talent. Not everyone does. That's that's Ranick's way of doing it. Um, sorry, one second, Conor. I'll just get rid of that call, sorry. That's Ranick's way of measuring talent. And I find it a really interesting one because it does put mentality right at the top of the scale. And when I look at other players, I sometimes run that equation in my head, and it's Sometimes pretty unclear what a player's mentality is. I think Balotelli is obviously an extreme example of someone who's had great talent but hasn't always fulfilled it. But Ranick is finding ways of measuring this talent. And right. once again, that, that goes back to what we discussed at the beginning, because I think measuring psychology, and measuring the mentality of players is, is the next frontier of play development. I think we've
0: all heard of rhetorical questions before, but in Regnik when he gave that to you it was more of a rhetorical formula in terms of the answer you're looking for is in the mentality mentality being the, the multiplier. And do you believe in having this one size fits all objective definition of talent running through an organization? Does that provide many tangible and intangible benefits across the whole enterprise?
1: So every time I spoke to someone different in the book, I asked them how they define talent and they all came up with different answers. So while it may be useful to have a common thread running through your organization, everyone is gonna have a different opinion of of what that is. And I actually liked Alex Inglethorpe's um, definition of talent. And he is the head of the academy at Liverpool who uh, in recent years have have, brought through a whole load of talented players, including Curtis Jones, Nate Phillips, Trent Alexander-Arnold. And previously he was at Spurs where he worked on the development of Harry Kane, Andros Townsend, Harry Winks, um, Adam Smith, a whole load of of players who came through the Spurs Academy. And and his also came up with an equation, which is quite an easy way of of remembering these things, but his was different to Ranix, and his was potential plus time, plus opportunity minus interference. And so that doesn't quite put mentality at the forefront of it in the way that Ranić did, but it put a lot of responsibility on the people around the, the talent. And this idea of opportunity minus interference. So give the players an opportunity, give youngsters an opportunity but also step back and let them make mistakes and don't micromanage, don't helicopter parent or what, you know whatever the phrase is. So that, that, that I found a really interesting definition of, of talent and it's almost more of a definition of talent development because it's a way of bringing talent through which involves you allowing them to make mistakes and obviously mistakes is the best way to learn. But again, it goes back to Result, result based or process based outcomes. And Inglethorpe's methodology is very process based and the, the results don't really matter. And what was interesting for him is he had the opportunity to be a first team coach. He was actually coach of Exeter City when they drew 0-0 with Manchester United in the FA Cup. So he was a first team coach and he decided that what was better for him was to be a, an elite developer of talent. And that again, that's a measure of success because you've almost got to uh, forego your ego. I think when you're a head coach of an organization, there's quite a lot of ego involved in that. But if you rather take the decision to be a, a developer of talent, your, your ego takes a back seat. And so I'm full of admiration for um, Alex Inglethorpe for having the presence of mind to realize that, for having the self awareness to really look. and and see what his measure of success is in terms of his personal career and ambitions, but also this idea of giving opportunity and not interfering. And I think he has a golden number of a hundred matches. I think that he wants all players to have played in by the time they're 20 first team matches. So it's better to play at a lower level in the first team than Wait, your, wait and, 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 and um, not have as many matches. And that's just his method. And that runs through the whole of the Liverpool Academy and it doesn't work for every organisation and nor should it, but it is at least a thread that, that goes through there. And I go to a lot of clubs and work with clubs where they don't have even any concept of it. They just chuck it in the mix and see who comes up. And so I help them find a kind of development pathway, strategy, uh, a purpose, uh, a USP, an edge, however you want to call it, to work out how they want to develop their talent. And, and, and often they have the idea, but it's just not communicated very well. So they just can't articulate it very well. So sometimes it's, it's there and you can see it in action but it's just not communicated. But I think if you have it and it's communicated, it can be extremely beneficial in so many different ways because it can um, it can attract talent to you. It can uh, help you retain the talent, but also it's a rallying call for the people, everyone else in the organization and for the fans. If you support Athletic Club de Bilbao, you know what the club stands for. If you support Red Bull, you know what you're getting, right? There are a lot of teams out there. You support a team. in. You support a team because of their geography or because of your family background or whatever it is but you don't really know what the team stands for or what the culture of the team is or what their purpose is and i think it's really important now kind of more than ever when there's more challenges to people's attention that um teams need to be culturally relevant and stay culturally culturally relevant and so i help them with that as well
0: fantastic and i suppose touching on one or nature- USP, so to speak, that you do have, is the research you've done on penalties, Ben, and the 12-yard substack, which I'd recommend absolutely everybody to subscribe for it. Is there a single best way to take a penalty kick?
1: <laughs> well, to score is the best way. Um, I would say, if I was taking a penalty um, tomorrow to win a big trophy, well, for a start, I would practise every day with purpose, I would ask my coach to tell me what number I was taking in a shootout so I knew way before the game. And if that number was to change, if a player was to go off, I'd want to know about it. So I would take out all the variables as early as possible. So if I have a cup final in April, um, uh, sorry, if I have a cup final in a couple of months away, I would want to know what the permutations were for plan A if everyone was fit, what number would I be kicking? But if star player A was injured or sent off or missing, what number would I be kicking? How would that change? Um, and then I'd want to know in my own mind where I would be cooking that penalty. And I would practice doing that. And I'd practice that now. And if you hit the penalty exactly in the way you want to do it, you should score every time. But the reasons why players don't is because often in the period between the walk to the spot or from spotting the ball to striking the ball, something changes in their psychology that makes them nervous. And often that's because of lack of preparation and lack of purposeful practice, all of which can be worked on way before. And we often hear from players who missed penalties and explain it away afterwards by saying, I changed my mind at the last minute. Well, you know, why did you do that? Because you weren't confident in your original decision because you hadn't practiced enough or you hadn't worked it out. And it feels quite a unfashionable and boring thing to say because you sound like a parent saying, do your homework, practice, practice, practice. But actually that's how you get results. And sometimes you can practice loads and you're not even, the, the exam question doesn't come up. So you don't have a penalty shootout. There hasn't been a penalty shootout in the Champions League for five years um, since 2016. So apart from qualifiers, So, you know, sometimes you prepare for it and it doesn't come up. But the difference, when it does come up, the difference between getting it right and getting it wrong is obviously marginal. So it's very important to, to get those margins right.
0: And in terms of bringing it to the present and you look at trees, in particular penalty takers in Robert Lewandowski, Bruno Fernandes, Jorginho, they all have a similar enough process in that their penalties are largely goalkeeper dependent. They've all enjoyed tremendous conversion rate success. But when you compare that to arguably the greatest player of our generation, Lionel Messi, and you wrote in a piece a few months ago saying that his conversion rate was just average, why wouldn't he follow suit
1: um that's that's a, a very good question And uh, the, the messy penalty conundrum is a, is a really fascinating one and there are lots of different reasons that might be for why his penalty scoring rate is at 78 percent which is exactly the same as what the penalty scoring rate is across europe's big five leagues and it's almost the definition of average he's just bang on the line and while some people think, well, that's still a good rate, and it is, it's four out of five, pretty much, um, for a player who constantly leaves us with our jaws on the floor for what he does when the, the ball is an open play, I, I feel it's a surprisingly low figure. Um, and I asked a lot of people who, who've watched him closely and um, have wondered the same question, and they came up with all sorts of different answers. And the fact that they all came up with different answers also, I found really interesting and inspiring because it just shows it's not a simple solution. Um, so one, one of the experts said that he thinks penalties are too easy for Messi and a free kick is a much tougher challenge and Messi's record from free kicks is astonishing. So uh, that might be one reason. Another one said that goalkeepers must try harder against Messi because it's more of a feather in their cap. Um, Graham Hunter who's written a book about Barcelona and is based there and has actually interviewed Messi about penalties, um, came up with a very interesting theory that when you are so good and you're able to turn games so quickly with a moment of genius, maybe taking a penalty isn't such a big deal. And if you don't score it, you know that you'll be able to come up with something else at another point anyway. So the weight of pressure on the penalty going in is a bit lower. And there might be something in that as well. I, I did like that idea. And that actually ties into the fact that every time Messi has missed a penalty for Barcelona, they've only lost the game once after that. And that was in a first leg of a cup tie against Espanyol. And they, they won the second leg of the cup tie 2-0. So um, they went through in the end. So no Messi penalty has actually caused them to lose a game which I find astonishing, although he has missed two big ones in Champions League, knockout games against Chelsea, and just now against PSG. So the fact there's no answer also makes it really interesting. And I think one of the reasons why we can enjoy penalties even more is that we can see that, well, you know, they even make someone like Messi feel human. So that's, that's also great.
0: Of course, and then I think it's no surprise you had a similar and equally interesting take on why Man City, yeah. and in particular, Pep Guardiola's teams. May also be falling short from the spot.
1: Yeah, that's interesting, and I think that in a way might be connected to the Messi saga as well, because the common thread between the two of them is the influence and presence of Johan Cruyff in their lives. And Cruyff set up La Masia was a key figure at Barcelona. He's also probably the biggest influence on Guardiola's coaching career, and he famously hated penalties. He didn't see them as part of football. He was rubbish at penalties. Um, And I think one of the reasons why he was rubbish at them was because he was all about intuition and space and fluidity, and that was counter to that. But also apparently he didn't have a very hard shot on him anyway. So it just did not suit, penalties just did not suit him. So he was always pretty anti-penalties, never practiced them. His teams never practiced them. I think that must've filtered through to Guardiola. And his record from the spot for Guardiola teams is surprisingly poor. Not just Man City over the last two years, but in Champions League knockout matches. Guardiola teams have missed three key penalties that have resulted in them being knocked out, including Messi against Chelsea in 2012, but also um, Thomas Muller against Atletico Madrid when he was at Bayern and Sergio Aguero against Spurs. Um, in the first leg of of that dramatic uh, 2019 quarterfinal, missed a penalty and Spurs won that leg 1-0. So if Aguirre's called that away goal, I think they'd have have gone through. Um, So it's interesting and especially as Manchester City approach the knockout rounds of the Champions League this time round as one of the competition favourites, but facing a pretty spicy draw uh, to get to the final. um, I will be watching that really closely with interest.
0: And then furthermore, Ben, you are also the author of a number of kids' books, using football as a tool indeed for education and self-improvement. Could you tell us a bit more about your work here in this realm and perhaps the most recent initiative you guys did for World Book Day?
1: Yeah, sure, Connor. My um, book series is called Football School. Um, There are 10 books in the series, and the books explain the whole world through football, but they're really written as a way to get kids to enjoy reading They're written for children aged between six and 12. Um, They open up the school curriculum. So every chapter is a lesson that they might have in their school, but you're learning about football while talking about the lessons. Um, And we set it in a school because that's a very familiar environment for the kids. There are loads of football jokes and cartoons. um, And we find it has a really positive impact on kids engagement in learning it's learning in a different way it's showing that everything is connected so usually the kids curriculum their lessons are English is one thing math is something else science is something else PHSE is something else and they're all very siloed but the world is connected and there are all these connections going on we're using football to show that the world is connected to develop curiosity and an interest in the wider world but the reason we really wrote it is because um, there has been a massive crisis in literacy in this country um over the last 10 years and reading for pleasure in that age group is in decline so um it's gone down um since 2016 to it's now le- it's now less than 30 percent of of kids who are under 13 read for pleasure and there are hundreds of thousands of children that don't have a book of their own um, and so what we Really want to do with football school is make sure that every kid has a book, and because six and seven is around the age where kids really start becoming um, passionate about football, we wanted to give them a subject that they're already into to help them foster and develop a love of reading. Because once you have a love of reading, it never goes. And one of the things that kids have told us is, you know, I just I don't love reading because there's nothing I want to read about, and so we're giving we're getting rid of that excuse. By saying well if you love football you will love to read this And we partnered with a, a uk charity called world book day this year and wrote a special book called 20 fantastic football stories for world book day and the great thing about world book day is every school child in the uk gets a free voucher so they can exchange that voucher for a free book so every child can get a free book, which is brilliant. And we partnered with the Premier League who delivered 25,000 copies of our book to schools all around the UK, um, which which was absolutely brilliant. And the power of and importance of World Book Day is really inspiring and rewarding because they wanna provide every child in the UK with a book of their own. Sometimes that book is their very first. So um, we're really aware also this year that uh, the pandemic has widened uh, the economic and educational gap. Um, So children that didn't have a book before the pandemic are even less likely to have had a book. So we're we're trying to redress the balance, get kids reading, get kids enjoying, uh, learning as well about the world. And I I find that a really rewarding and inspiring part of my job. And I work with football clubs and we literacy charities and do workshops with the football clubs in the Premier League as well. So always speaking to kids. Um, I've been doing virtual lessons and virtual workshops with kids in the last year, but hopefully I'll be able to go back to schools and, and speak to them soon. But again, it's a similar similar work to what I do with Twelve Yards and Edge Corner because it's using football as a tool for education and a tool for self improvement. And I think football has a you know an, an amazing ability to bring people together and to work as a as a force for social good and so i feel privileged and proud that i'm using that to help children and in, in a way to help adults as well with their professional lives awesome.
0: absolutely tremendous initiative i'll be sure to link in the show notes below Ben. but finally to close uh, steve jobs once said that you can only connect to on backwards. What traits and soft skills have you embodied in pursuing your passion? How has your research in football impacted you over the past 10-15 years in shaping you as a person?
1: Well, what a very good question, Connor. Um, I I would say that I am because I'm lucky enough to have had these conversations with really inspiring leaders, my approach to everything I do is in some way helped and changed and tweaked often by, by them. So I've spoken before about um, Deschamps and Tuckle and some of the lessons we've taken from that. But one of the other fascinating conversations I had was also with someone at Chelsea. Uh, so it'll be of interest to you, the head of sports psychology there, Dr. Tim Harkness, who I spoke to about resilience and I think this is something that we all really need to be aware of, especially as we come out of um, the current situation where everyone is on a different page, to go back to, as we said at the beginning, and I think people's mental health really needs to be considered and, you know, will be top of mind on, on, in, in how we recover and tweak our relationships or carry on with our relationships, being mindful of where everyone is at. And as, as I asked for a definition of talent as I went through the journey of the book, I also asked um, Tim Harkness what his definition of resilience was. And most people think it's bouncing back from adversity, which in some ways it is, but he actually gave me a really fascinating definition of what he sees resilience as. And he sees it as the ability to accurately assess threats, and opportunities, and to allocate emotional resources accordingly. And I found that really powerful and interesting when you break it down. This idea that um, every adversity has a consequence, but it's not just adversity that we're talking about. And so the way he defined it was really to ask yourself three questions. Which is, um, which helps us decide whether an emotional response is accurate or not. So, the first one is around intent. The next one is around frequency. And the final one is around impact. So, the first question let's give an example um, of something that I would need to be resilient about. So, the example that Tim gave me was we're standing on the train. So, you and I, Connor, are standing on the train together and you stand on my toe and it really hurts. Um, So the first question I have to ask is, was, is it me, right? Intent. Did you actually intend to to stand on my toe and, um, and hurt my toe? So I would probably say no to that. Therefore, any emotional response would need to be tempered with that. If it was yes, and you did do it on purpose, then my next question is frequency. So how often do you stand on my toe when we're together? And do you, does it always happen when we're together or is it only happening now? And if it's always happening and you're always standing on my toe, then again, I would need to have a different emotional response that is accurate to what has happened. And the final, um, question is about impact. So having broken my toe is, is the pain more important than anything else in my life. Does the whole relationship we have revolve around you standing on my toe and nothing else. And that's the wider context. And these three things I think are, actually really powerful and helpful tools for me, not only during a stressful period like we're currently in, but also in in any normal period when you're waiting for a phone call from a colleague or um, upset that someone hasn't liked something on social media or whatever it is. Are these accurate emotional responses to things, right? What is the intent? What is the frequency? What is the actual impact? And I think we do need to be resilient right now. We also need to be thoughtful and considerate but when we're thinking about our own behaviours and our own way of um, managing stress, those, that algorithm has been really helpful to me. So, as I said, I've been lucky to speak to these leaders who have helped me in my personal and, and professional life. Um, using the psychology of sports performance, kind of self-optimized my, my own individual development and, uh, and, I, and I hope I can do that for others
0: as well. I certainly believe you have been. Um, it's a tremendous way to close. I mean, I think the constant theme throughout your life's work, so to speak, is that you do believe football is a tool for education and self-improvement. Um, I'll be sure to attach Edge, uh, the 12-year substack and everything else in the show notes below. But should anybody else wish to initiate a conversation with yourself, Ben, where's best to connect? on social media
1: so yeah you can connect uh, on twitter i'm at ben lit b-e-n-l-y-t i'm also on linkedin ben littleton so the usual um the usual methods i've also got a website for football school which is footballschool.co so if you're interested in learning a little bit more about that it's footballschool.co um but yeah it's not easy it's not difficult to find me
0: sadly <laughs> Fantastic. It'll go on the show notes below. Ben, once more, thank you for taking the time out. Top, man. Thank you, Conor.